Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. I am stoked to be joined by two members of the Malaysian groove metal band Mothflesh. Mothflesh just released their second full-length album, Machine Eater, on December 10th of 2021. This episode was recorded the day after the album's release. Today, both Easy and Mad Dog will di- dive deeper into Machine Eater, and I also hope to learn more about Asia's metal scene. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, man. It's an honor to be here. I know we were chatting a little bit before about uh, the release of your album and uh, Asian Metal, but before that, I saw some promo pics, Easy, of your other group, Berdosa, and you guys wore uh, some traditional Malaysian clothing. Right. I just wanted to say that was pretty cool. I like seeing that kind of stuff um, brought into music, whether it be traditional instruments, clothing, or whatever. It's a cool twist. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Um, The the idea behind um, the traditional clothing um, we wore in Berdosa um, comes from the fact that uh, Malaysia is ethnically a patchwork of a multitude of ethnicities, from all over Asia. So in Malaysia, the three largest predominant ethnic groups are the Chinese uh, from Southern China, um, the Indians uh, from Southern India and the Indians from Northern India, um, and the Malays, which are predominantly from the region um, around the Malaysian uh, peninsula. So what we tried to do in, in, in Berdosa was try to express uh, our cultural identity and lineage so but in the context of of, of a united band yeah. so like we've got different ethnicities in the band but and we're, we're all representing our cultural roots but we're all one one individual unit so i i myself i'm i'm uh my my mother's my mother she's malay my dad comes from my dad's grand my, my grandfather comes from northern india much like Mad Dog over here, um, his family comes from uh, the northern part of India, Punjab, and uh, it's this um, patchwork of different ethnicities and multiculturalism that actually makes Malaysia what it actually is. Um, just like a fun fact, like the the, the second large, largest Chinese speaking population outside of China is in Malaysia. So we've got that's crazy. Yeah, the second largest Mandarin and Cantonese speaking population outside of China and Malaysia, and they've been here for about four to five different generations. But the cultural identity mm-hmm. is still very present and around this everywhere today. Like for example, I just had Chinese food an hour ago. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting because when I went to Malaysia, um, I only was able to stop into Kuala Lumpur, and um, I actually didn't really see uh, many Chinese people. I didn't realize that it was so diverse. That's surprising because they're all the everywhere, actually. Um, which part of Kuala Lumpur were you hanging around? You know, I wish I could tell you that was years ago. Um, and then also to my detriment, I was only there for a few days. So it might have been just the places I was visiting um, and like maybe the hours are kept. I have no idea. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, I'll my... be looking forward to host you if you come here next time. That'd be fantastic. I would love yeah, that. For sure, man. Uh, Mad Dog, you're from India then or your family is? No, I'm actually third generation Malaysian. So okay, yeah. So my great great grandfather, he he fought in the World War Two on the on behalf of the British. Uh, mm-hmm. They deployed Punjabi troops over in Malaysia to counter the Japanese at that. Time. So he was part of that military force, and um, 
they gave him residency afterwards and then here i am a northern That's indian cool. in malaysia yeah and then do you speak punjabi as well yeah i actually speak four languages all right well <laughs> i speak one so humble brag amazing <laughs> which other languages uh I speak Bahasi, Hindi, I it? speak Punjabi, I speak Bahasa, and I speak English. Bahasa, okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then as we were talking before, Bahasa is the, the Malay language, right? It is, yeah. It's the national language as well. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so let's get on to your new album, Machine Eater. Where did the name come from? And I, I love the artwork. How does that tie in? So um, the name actually, uh, it's interesting. We, it came from the artwork itself. We, didn't, we, we had a rough concept of what we wanted our album to be. And I'll talk about that first, I guess. Um, conceptually, the album is this idea of what we perceive the future to be like. Um, a lot of the contemporary interpretations of the future are extremely, um, in my opinion, optimistic. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's colorful. It's full of all these wonderful augmentations. Uh, it's it's gonna allow us to live forever. You know that with, with where technology and medical technology has come. If anyone here has played uh, like cyberpunk, you know, on on PC or console. Well, you can't play it in console because it's completely bugged in console. But like, you know, the whole concept. If you look at the color palette of the game, it's colorful, it's vibrant, it's neon. Everyone's playing synthwave. Um, Keanu Reeves is in the future and stuff. And I, I think that's like a extremely um, uh, like I wouldn't say liberal, but it's 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 a extremely. Um, uh, far-fetched idea of the future, especially from the fact that we come from Southeast Asia, and a lot of our perception of what the future is is that it's com- it's it's really dark, you know. It's and it comes at a cost, uh, especially when when you're Asian, you're you're so much so looking at the world from, from the perspective of being part of the uh, of of the industry, but you're part of the industry at a much lower segmented level. So we see the dirt. You know, we see the pollution, we we see the exploitation, we see a lot of these, um, uh, the benefits of these exploitations or those taking advantage of, of the exploited going to different parts of the world, going to the Middle East, you know, going to Europe or mm-hmm. going to North America and whatnot. So, so the idea is that the future is going to be dystopian. I mean, there are going to be people who are going to benefit, but the cost of that benefit is going to be borne to the people who are not uh who, who are under um that 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 belt or or, or, or mm-hmm. line you know and that's where really we we're at you know where we're, we're come from countries where labor is constantly exploited uh resources are constantly exploited at the benefit of other nations you know so yep. moving into how we came up with the name machine eater um we we were, we we were looking for artwork and that, that 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 spoke to the concept. We didn't really have an idea for the name of the album yet. We found uh, this, I, I believe, it was this Russian artist. Um, I forget his name, but like it resonated with us. It resonated with the sound of the album, and um, we, we 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 got his work and we we, we took it. And I, I allowed Imran and Runbear to go through the process of actually coming up with the name. You know, um, I, I, I believe Runbury, you came up, was it, was it you or? 
yeah, came up with the name. The vocalist, Mr. Imran, uh, we actually got together because usually when there's only three people in a band, uh, standoff is a Mexican standoff is very easy to achieve with that. So everybody has different ideas and, and stuff like that. So easy, very graciously, uh, let us make the decision. Um, we have this uh, very endearing term that we use. Right. We have a very endearing term that we use in our band. It's called omakase. It's Japanese for, I'll leave it up to you. Right. So, and what we, uh, what me and Imran did was I chose a word. He chose a word. He chose eater. I chose machine. So we combined it and then you became machine eater. Um, the Lotus Denial has kind of a cool theme. So, uh, the relationship between advancing technology and the subsequent addiction that comes with social media. Um, although this could also be related to other instances like video games and other products. And as we were talking about just a moment ago, like exploitation of other countries, why do you think that this is important and why did you choose to address these specific topics? Um, the lyrics came from uh, our vocalist, Emran, and addiction is a big problem we have in Malaysia, not in the sense where um, like heavy drug use is as prevalent as uh, in other countries like, a, you know, Australia or Europe, but uh, we have this um, addiction to, um, you know, how, how we use technology to escape. And some, I'll, I'll try to give you an example. You know, there's this, there's this idea that Asian societies or Asian people are extremely timid, you know, like we're non-confrontational, we've got an issue, we don't really bring it out. Um, and that, that perception is that, oh yeah, you know, like Asians don't really speak out or try to break away from the norm, pretty conservative people. Um, the reality is that, um, um, conservative Asian society does not have the tools to allow an individual to speak up or speak, speak against the norm. So how does that translate to addiction and technology? Technology has allowed us to speak our mind without actually directly speaking our mind, so to speak. Like we can say without actually saying, you know, Facebook does mm-hmm. the thing where, oh, I'm going to share how I feel, but, I, but without actually telling people what is going on, you know, like, oh, I just lost my job, but I'm not going to say I lost my job. I'm just going to say I, I had a really bad day. And it's up to mm-hmm. everyone else to look at that and... Um, have their own interpretation of that. So this addiction comes from the fact that in Malaysia, people hide behind social media and, uh, and, and use that as a crutch to express themselves and then leave, you know, leave a lot for a lot more for interpretation. So communication has become extremely difficult now with the advent of, um, you know, messaging systems like WhatsApp and uh, Telegram and, you know, social media like Instagram and, and Facebook, where, you know, I could meet up with you and we could have a lovely dinner and then I'm going to go back. And then like your, your, the, the reflection of the time I had with you does not m- reflect the the time I had of you in real life. So there is this, hmm. there is this, uh, that there's a cognitive dissonance. There's a dissonance mm-hmm. that, 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 uh, starts to arise between how we communicate and how social media is, is used um, in regards to that communication. So the, the real question is, which one's real? If I come up to mm-hmm. you and say, hey, you know, you had a great time and we're great friends, but then on, on like a messaging app where we're communicating more because it's easier, you're telling me I'm not very happy with you. So there are two different realities and you're just kind of 
you, you, it's up to you to, do, to, to decide and define which one is best, you know? That's, that's, that's um, how we, it, that's our interpretation of the Lotus Denial. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, like uh, that you mentioned, like speaking over social media or speaking over technology versus being uh, with each other in person, because I've noticed that even when people are together, they're constantly on their phone talking with other people instead of focusing on the people that they're with. That's right. And it's a global phenomenon, actually. It's not just yep. uh, something that is uh, lo- locale based. So which is why I feel that Lotus Denial can connect with the wider audience compared to our other songs, which are a lot more uh, locally thought of, if you if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What other topics do you cover in Machine Eater? Um, so the, the other topics we, we cover in uh, Machine Eater um, are um, industrial exploitation. Uh, that's covered in a song called um, Chaos Intervals. We talk about this, this whole concept about how it's extremely difficult for people who are um, below the minimum wage to rise up in a capitalistic society, um, mm-hmm. you know, like simple example, you know, like you, 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 you can buy a good pair of working boots for $500 um, and that's going to last you one lifetime. Or you can buy a pair of cheap working boots that are going to cost you $5, but it's going to, you're going to have to re- replace them mm-hmm. every, every four years or so or three years or so. So you're constantly just trying to maintain a life without actually living and th- that's at the cost of those who have a- excess and yep. this is this is like a prevalent um form of exploitation that that happens all over southeast asia in the philippines and mm-hmm. in, in, in indonesia um and in, in, in malaysia you know when we talk about people in power we talk about the stagnant economy and our inability to to grow we a lot of that is posited to um industrialists or, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that society or the media portrays as people we should look up to or people we should venerate as heroes. Really, what are they doing? They're just, it's just exploitation at the, at the very core of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you have these massive companies like, say, Facebook, now called Meta, that are they give you a platform, but now they're like censoring who can be on it. They're allowing some other people and making things more difficult for everybody to be on an equal playing field. Yeah. Um, like I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting as well to see like how, especially Facebook plays a big role in our society, especially in Southeast Asia, social media. Mm-hmm. You brought that again. Um, Malaysia. And I believe it was Singapore as well was actually, um, recently uh, put through a survey as one of the largest consumers of social media. That means because we have cheap internet over here, so much of us are hooked on to social media so often that uh, the power of social media ha- can effectively create a massive ripple mm-hmm. in everyday society and politics. We see this happening um, with Cambridge Analytica uh, in, in the U.S. and how that affected the elections over there. A lot of that information over there was used to testing in um, in in the political um, the, the the political environment of India, which is actually the largest democracy in the world. So where Asia is, it's it's a lot of these. Uh, I'd say without trying to sound um, conspiratorial, 
it, the reality is that um, a lot of um, these big companies exploit uh, countries in Southeast Asia because of lack of regulation to improve their systems and then deploy them in more developed nations. I'm going to jump back and forth here a little bit. So you guys sing in English, but you do ha use some Bahasa. We do, yeah. What's the reason for singing in English rather than than in your native tongue? Um, accessibility, that's for okay. sure. And um, the reason why we have Bahasa in there is just to bring in a little bit of the intrigue where our band is concerned. Um, but we feel that the, the medium of English is widespread enough for the entire world to understand what we are trying to say. And uh, I think it's important that everybody understands the message. If we were to exclusively use Bahasa, then our, our influence range could diminish because of that. Do you think that over time you might in, um, include more Bahasa in your music? We shall see. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you guys learn English? I'm guessing school? Yeah. Yeah, I, I learned English. We speak English in my household as well. So, and I have a lot of friends overseas. Um, fun fact, I did my law degree in the UK. So English was a pre, pre uh, what, what do you call it? A very dominant force where mm -hmm. language is concerned in my life at, at least. Yeah. So then you went to the UK for your law degree. How was that? Like, what was that experience like? depressing honestly <laughs> yeah, i can understand that for sure yeah i yeah. moved away from my city so yeah dude uh uk weather is is no joke it's depressing especially <laughs> during winter yeah i mean it just drains all the color out of your life i'm mm -hmm. used to the tropical weather here you know it's 32 35 degrees celsius here all the time it rains it's it we only have two weather it's either wet or it's dry or fucking hot right and uh <laughs> yeah pretty much my language by the way um but in the UK, you know, my, my body is so not used to it. It had a lot of temperature fluctuations. And I, I studied in Aberystwyth, which is uh, off the coast of Wales, right? So it's right next to the beach. So then super cold air um, and dry air used to come hmm. over to our location. And uh, yeah, I mean, I finished what I could. I spent one and a half years over there just finishing it up. Yeah. And then I quickly made my way back to Malaysia where home is. Yeah. Yeah. And so after the release of this album, what is the next step for Moth Flesh? Do you guys have tours? Um, are you guys planning more music? You want to take it easy? Uh, where, where we're going next is we're going to release primarily more singles uh, throughout the year um, just to keep ourselves busy. And we um are gonna explore going into heavier territories because i believe uh runway just got the new um abasi eight string guitar for himself so we're looking at going on a drop e uh, i will allow runway to talk about that in great length uh after, after this um i can't seem to change the mics because it's not allowing me to, but I will try to bring the mic closer to my face. So it'll be like this. This is actually, that's better. When you brought it closer yeah. to you, that was actually much better. I'm going to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. That about that. Yes. Okay. I hope you can hear me. <laughs> yeah. Much better. I, I the I that I've got to jump through for this video. <laughs> um, 
Sorry, Jeff, just a quick question. Is this going to be yeah. when you when you publish this podcast is are, are we going to be like there in video or is it just going to be a completely like audio auditory experience? For right now, um, the video is just for us. And oh. so it's not recorded. It's just so that we can have a better conversation. Okay. Ah, okay. okay. Better than that makes it easier for, for Unver, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think that'd be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, that's great. I'm not wearing any pants. That's why. So it's fantastic. Um, most, most times at home, I don't either. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, no shame, right? No. I tried that going into work a couple of times and they sent me home, but. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, okay, what we're, what we're going to be working on next um, is we're going to have another music video and mm -hmm. we're going to be working on um, another single. Well, actually, we're going to be um, having a different version of, of, of a single of our album, uh, which is called Myriagon, and that's going to feature um, a different vocalist from a different country. We're keeping that under wraps right now, but that's going to be like a different interpretation, different vocal interpretation of the song. That's what I'm going to, uh, oh, that's, that, cool. that's the best way to say it. And then, um, as I said, uh, Ranveer, he's got his new um, Abasi Lorada. What, what do you talk about that for a bit, Ranveer? Give, give us an idea sure. of what it's like and where we're going to go with that. Right. Okay. So we, we have, a, I hope you all can hear me nice because I'm clowning around right now. So, um, right. Okay. So I just got the Abasi and I'm actually quite happy with that purchase, to be honest. It's a beautiful guitar and... Um, so with the eight string, what we are trying to do is uh, explore the drop E territory of metal. And uh, we are definitely going to try some of that um, thumping style a little bit. So think uh, Mashuga meets animals as leaders with a little bit of periphery in there. Interesting. Yeah. So drop E is not a very common um, tone from what I can gather. Uh, no. In, in Malaysia, at least I... I can't recall any bands that play in Tropi. Is there any easy? Um, I, I think the limitation behind why not many bands play in Tropi, especially now part of, 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 of our corner of the world, is because of um, access to strings. Uh, when you're playing that mm. low, you, 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 need, you need to have a certain standard and a uh, certain gauge to be able to play, uh, to maintain attention. And it's just uh, inaccessible from where we're at. So like both, I think Runbear and I, we we buy our strings from the U.S. and we have mm -hmm. them shipped every two months or so when they start to die out, just to be able to play at our current tuning, which is drop A effectively. I mean, you can play, mm -hmm. you can use regular strings and regular guitars, but the gear we use is optimized to play at that tension, to play at that tuning. So, you know, if we want to be serious about it, or if anyone wants to be serious about anything, we, we got to put in a bit of the elbow grease in that. So, um, I think it's at that that higher uh, that high entry of barrier that keeps a lot of people from playing in drop E, um, but well we're, we're we're willing to put the work in it. So yeah, we're gonna try. That's for sure. It's cool that you guys um, are kind of experimenting, but I also want to touch on the fact that you said like access to strings. So earlier we were talking about like access to resources or money and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and this is another example. Like you guys are have more difficult more difficulty, sorry, accessing certain, um, I guess, pieces for your instruments. Right. Is that something um, that's like, is it because of the location or is that something that's, uh, I, what I'm I trying personally to ask. think it's more market driven. Okay. Uh, majority of guitar players in Malaysia do not engage in, um, heavier drop tunings. Um, so the market decides what kind of stock, 
comes into Malaysia. So oh, fair enough. Yeah, you know, so it's and that's mostly because like metal's not a huge, um, it's not a huge scene in Malaysia. Yeah, yet. yeah. Um, okay. Pop punk, rock, um, more like top fifty songs are a lot more prevalent here, and mm-hmm. uh, that that allows mostly uh, generic. I wouldn't call it generic per se, but like common string gauges to be more accessible here compared to what we are looking for as metal players. Um, me personally, I use ten sixty. Um, yeah, it's it's very very difficult. Uh, I probably can acquire maybe one or two packets every year if I'm lucky. Um, wow. Yeah, 1060. Yeah. So, what is that? Uh, okay, that's the string gauge. So uh, it's actually 0.010 millimeters, if I'm not mistaken, in in diameter. So that's the thickness of the string. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so zero point zero point six zero is the the thickest string that we use. I mean, I use in in okay. Flash. Yeah. So is ten sixty then the um the range at which you play? That's right. That's right. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So I'd just like to add to what Runver said. You know, you brought up an interesting uh, talking point earlier about accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, um, a lot of it is economics. Uh, just to just to build on what Runver said. You see, what's interesting is in our part of the world, this is where a lot of the raw material and resources are gathered and manufactured to the point bef- to the point of assembly. But mm-hmm. everything that comes after assembly is then shipped over to Europe or North America and then marketed back out. So, I'll give you an example: uh, Dingwall Bases. They're 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 you know, they're a Canadian company, right? Um, uh, they're made in China. Their, their their resources are sourced in China. The woods made the wood wood, wood is sourced in, in Asia, and they're assembled in China, and then they're shipped over to Canada to be set up and inspected, and then they're shipped back out, you know, into Europe or Asia to be sold again. So if I'm buying mm-hmm. a Dingwall, or this is the case for I believe it's also Solar Guitars and uh, Reverend Basses and a, a whole host of guitar companies, I'm buying them here. My, my my instrument's going to start closer to where I am, mm-hmm. flown halfway across the world, and then flown back. And I'm paying a premium for each time this this instrument hits an air airplane in airport. So this is where I guess like these kind of idiosyncrasies come come into play in and in, in regards to how things become really challenging to play extreme or esoteric music in our part of town and south and uh, in, in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And you think with the influx of um, of different musical scenes, they would do something to kind of shorten that turnover, or I guess make it easier for people to play. You would they want to get their so, name right? out there. They want to get their instruments out there. I don't know why they wouldn't cut out that shipping portion of it. Um, it comes back to economics, buying power. Malaysians yeah. and Southeast Asian region lack the buying power that the Western Hemisphere has. So yep. it makes it a lot more difficult for us to. I mean, it, I wouldn't call it difficult per se because uh, I have got some excellent gear, uh, but that's just me being lucky, being in a in a correct socioeconomic uh, status where I can actually afford those things. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you for a fact, it's actually fucking expensive to buy anything here. So how much would your eight-string guitar then be? Uh, well, I bought it for. Three thousand US dollars. Jesus. Yes. 
So <laughs> I don't know how that would compare to over here, but that's that's incredible it's either an, way. At least eight hundred dollars above what American buyers would pay. And that's probably just because of the shipping and being brought back to your guys' market. And our customs tax. Interesting. Yeah. That's crazy. I see a, a headless guitar in the back there. Um, yeah. What's... So, fun fact, Jeff. I'm actually sponsored by Strandberg, Malaysia. Oh, cool. I, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> However, that headless right there, it's, it's just a GOC. It's a brand from China. Um, I bought it out of impulse, to be honest. So, allow me to show it to you. That's so a nice cherry that, wood color, yeah. Yeah, it's got that swamp ash quality to it. Uh, I actually just use this for practice, to be honest. Um, it's not that good of a guitar. <laughs> but that's just my personal opinion. And so what's the difference between a headless guitar and then one that has the traditional head on it? Um, for me, it comes back down to ergonomics. Um, headless guitar tend to have, I would say, a third of their wood amount cut off. And uh, the Strandbergs that I use have uh, carved out bodies. So on the inside, it's a lot more lighter than, and than what a regular guitar would be. So it saves me the, the tension on my neck whenever I play or whenever I'm standing up and practicing. And uh, just the hand motion. So everything has got to be about ergonomics. I got to be super comfortable while I'm playing. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I can't play at the speed or at the technical level that I am playing currently and if you're focusing on your comfort you're not going to be paying attention to the music exactly so speaking of playing music you guys have played in some interesting venues like uh you mentioned rainforests <laughs> yeah yeah easy will tell, tell me some more, about, more that. about that yeah um so a big chunk of um the organizers for underground music in malaysia are uh come from the punk scene over here we've got a very very vibrant um, and dynamic punk scene in Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, like, CBGB's kind of, like, uh, punk, you know, in, in regards to, like, the style of punk rock where we're talking about. So, like, um, you, you know, talk about bands like, Did, you know, Dead Kennedys, Bad Brains, so, like, early punk or early, early hardcore and stuff like that is extremely prevalent over here in Malaysia. So, um we played in a in a rainforest uh, next to a waterfall. It was hosted by Punkik, so it was just a matter of them bringing a generator um, that could power up the backline and some lights, and it's just like a big party. Everyone brings their own alcohol. A lot of it's homemade because you know alcohol is a little more expensive over here. It being a predominantly Muslim country compared to the rest of Southeast Asia, um, and there aren't. Uh, permits, you know, uh, in in Malaysia, we're pretty strict about where we can play. So we need a we need a permit to play in any venue. So a lot of these um, these venues are kind of ad hoc, um, organized on the spot. I remember we played a show in Indonesia, and we had no idea we uh, where the venue was until two hours before um, the our our call time because. Um, it's illegal, and from what I understand, um, it's illegal to just host a show in, in, in Indonesia without having the, the permit. So to have this, hmm. this little like WhatsApp group, 
and everyone's in it. And it's just a matter of, all right, um, it's, it's 6.30. We figured out where it is. This is the secret location. This is at the time. And, you know, tell us you're coming. So mm-hmm. you'll head there and, you know, in a, in a matter of 45 minutes, um, they can transform like a, like a paddy field, a rice field into a stage with a venue with backline and like, you know, booths for drinks and merch and stuff like that. And then tear down within three hours if there's a tip off that the cop's going to come down and raid the venue. It's strange, but I kind of like that. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, the, the the spirit of punk rock is still very much alive, you know, mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia. That that whole attitude of do it yourself, um, that that whole that whole um, dogma of like being independent and having that that spirit to just do what you want to do without the support is is a big part of the scene in Southeast Asia, and it's also a big um, uh, idea, an element into how we as a band, as a metal band, uh, approach our outlook with music and our approach with marketing and our approach with um, yeah, uh, promotion and whatnot. And um, something I want to touch on before we start uh, chatting about the Malaysian metal scene is um, you said that uh, Malaysia predominantly Muslim, and I think they're about 60% Muslim. Am I correct? Yeah, 60, 65 around there. So the reason I'm going on this is because in Canada, there's obviously um, Muslim groups, except I don't have much exposure to a lot of them. Um, And in my capacity, I see uh, like Ramadan and I do have to deal with um, certain religious issues, however, not in the same scope. So I'm wondering as a country, um, how does something like Ramadan affect you guys? Uh, Okay. Um, So I I grew up as uh, in a Muslim household. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I don't practice it anymore, but, uh, I growing up in, in Malaysia, if you're Muslim, um, yeah, you just don't eat and drink until mm-hmm. sunset. Um, and if you're not Muslim, it's, it, it's, you can do whatever you want, really. There, there, there's no obligation, but for Muslims, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, I would say it's controlled. You know, mm-hmm. they've got these um, these these groups of um, religious police, and they they patrol the city, and they check if you know if you're Muslim, if, you know if you're if you're Muslim and you're eating in a you know in a restaurant or something, they'll check your your identification card and see, oh, you know, are are you Muslim? Are you of like Muslim background or identity? And if you are, and you're caught mm-hmm. eating in Ramadan, they're gonna they're gonna find you, or they're gonna put you in the back of this truck. Now, Ranveer, you can correct me if, if I don't have this right. They're gonna put you in the back of this truck drive you around the city and just berate you publicly and say that like this this person's not been fasting and i mean personally i think it's horribly draconian but um mm. this is the the state of i guess the culture of religion uh in in in, in malaysia so uh yeah it's extremely controlled that's 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 my outlook if you're muslim in malaysia and if you have an issue or if you have trouble uh following these rules, it's going to be very difficult for you to live a very uh, fulfilled life. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So then do you get harassed at all by the religious police if you're not Muslim? Or how do they, how, do, how can they tell? Well, I don't look Muslim, so I'm lucky. Uh, they usually don't harass non-Muslims because, you know, sensitivities of uh, uh, Muslim activities are a lot more heightened, especially during a time of celebration or, or like Ramadan, you know. So what me as a non-Muslim, what I 
have learned throughout my life is live and let live. So I respect their traditions and their religion, but I don't have to be a part of it. I am really not a part of it. So what I do is just as a bystander, I, I just sit and observe, you know. So, but I've been pretty lucky because most of my childhood friends are Muslim and, you know, Easy and, and Imran are Muslim as well. Practice, practicing or not, I'm not judging anybody. I myself am an, am an atheist, you know, but I come from a background of Sikhism. So I don't have a problem. I love everybody equally. Mm-hmm. So I know that Ramadan is like a very celebratory thing as well. Once the sun goes down, um, have you guys had the pleasure of being in a big group, um, big group setting and celebrating with um, other Muslims? Um, yeah, the, the general practice of Ramadan is, if, uh, if I understand it correctly, or uh, <laughs> not practiced it in so long, right, um, mm-hmm. is, is that um, you would get, get together um, with your family and friends who are also fasting, and mm-hmm. um, effectively break your fast together uh, at sunset and have a, a bit of a, a small feast, you know, nothing too mm-hmm. ostentatious. Uh, because the whole, if I understand things correctly, the whole point of Ramadan is to allow you to empathize with those who are less fortunate and do not have access to the same amount of uh, wealth and finance for you to buy food, you know. So, like, there are other people who are constantly hungry and thirsty out there. So, Ramadan... Um, teaches you to empathize uh, with that. I think that's the objective. I believe that's the objective behind it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, you know, with all things, there's the objective, and there's there's an ideology which is extremely. It's respectable in my opinion, but when it comes on the execution, you know how how things can get very uh, muddled up with different agendas and, and whatnot. Yeah, so and different interpretations and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So now, how does um being in a predominantly Muslim country, how does that affect the metal scene? And where did the metal scene begin in Malaysia? Oof, that's a good question, actually. Um, Runver, what do you talk about where it began first? Because you live, I mean, you've been here longer than I have. So, yeah. And then I'll take the second question. Runver? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Oh, I don't think you can hear me. I can't, I can't hear him. Can he hear us? Can you hear us? Okay, but we can't hear you. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll answer the question. You just, okay, sure. Um, so where, where the metal scene started off in Malaysia, um, I think it started off in the late 70s, early 80s, where we had a large exposure to early classic uh uh, new wave uh, British heavy metal bands like Iron Maiden, um, Judas Priest, and whatnot, you know, um, and that created um, a whole generation of glam rock bands in Malaysia that hmm. effectively emulated uh, bands like Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of any any other rat, you know, you know whatnot. Um, that uh, and that um, and a huge influx and influence from bands like uh, blues guitarists like uh, uh, Santana and whatnot. So um, Mal- early Malaysian heavy metal is pretty much blues oriented glam rock. That's the best way for me to describe it. So I guess it sounds pretty similar to early Motley Crue before 
they developed into um, where they were, in my opinion, with like, you know, Dr. Feelgood and stuff like that. Mm. And um, I'm back, guys. Yeah, the mic Perfect. is so much more louder now. Thank you, thank you. I shifted the mic to my headset, so. Okay, fantastic, Perfect. fantastic. Awesome. So, um, I was just talking about like the early early Malaysian bands. The problem is, again, I, did, I didn't grow up over here, so it's very hard mm-hmm. for me to, to talk about right. it. Actually, let me speak of, of it from an observer's perspective. Randy, why don't you just, just take the lead in this one? Sure thing. Um, so what happened with uh, metal is in the early 80s, early 90s, uh, uh, black, wa- black metal wave came over Malaysia. So there mm-hmm. was a lot of satanic hysteria around that. So the Muslim community, uh, uh, excuse me, let me say the religious Muslim community got pretty uppity with that. So then they decided to have a blanket ban on anything related mm-hmm. to metal because they are afraid it will corrupt the mind of the young Muslims, you know, in the country, uh, which I find quite ridiculous, by the way. But that's another whole, whole another thing. Um, so in the in the eighties and nineties that happened. Then after that, uh, the hardcore wave came over. Uh, you know, Linkin Park and you know, Avenged Sevenfold and all that. And then uh, we we started experiencing a little bit more of a liberal liberalization of of listening, right? But mm. uh, fast forward to today. I would say um, the the metal scene and the metal listening scene of Malaysia is uh, stuck five to ten years behind the global scene. So we in what st- way? In we are still going through the metal core, the Lamb of God era here until now. Okay. Yeah. So does it take some time? Uh, not now, but does it take some time in the past to? Sorry, let me formulate this better. Uh, when the metal scene was starting. Was it more difficult to access that music? Did it take some extra time for it to get to you guys? Yeah, for sure. Like, like te- technology helped for us to gain better access. Uh, mm-hmm. Pre-YouTube and uh, pre-internet, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of uh, there was not a lot of access to metal rock. Yes, Scorpions were huge in Malaysia. Uh, Deep Purple is huge here, so you know that that element there. So that is still considered acceptable to the mainstream right mm-hmm. so when we come to more extreme forms of music yeah that is a little bit dif- difficult for people to swallow um for example until today there is not a metal specific radio station in malaysia hmm. not even a rock station either they always mix in pop with that it's weird that they would mix the genres yeah oh well it is what it and then is. Easy, uh, you said you're not from Malaysia, then. Me? Yeah. Oh no, no, I, I'm Malaysian. I just, uh, I, I've only lived here for about ten, coming up to eleven years. Uh, oh, okay. I, I grew up abroad, so um, I still have like an outsider's perspective on what it was like growing up over here in Malaysia. I'm familiar with the culture. I just yeah. don't necessarily practice the culture like other Malaysians would. And where have you lived? Uh, I grew up. You don't mind me asking. Oh yeah, it's okay. I grew up in the Middle East, um, um, at around like Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Bahrain, um, um, in the early nineties, and then um, I moved. Uh, I moved to Europe. I, I lived in France for two years, and then uh, I came back to Malaysia for a bit. And I was living in Australia for about one, two years, I think, and then I came back to Malaysia, and now I'm here. 
That's really cool. Uh, you've been all over the place, both of you guys. Yeah. yeah. Helps to give us a bit of more of a worldview. Yeah, I would say so for sure. I think like if I would have done things again, I probably would have moved somewhere different just to see a different perspective. Um, I, I was born and raised in my city, so it's kind of it's one of those things I, I, I know very intimately. But when I travel, it's completely different. So I think I would have liked to be more comfortable in other uh, environments. Right. What would you have chosen? Sorry? What, where would you have chosen to stay if you had that choice? Uh, that's difficult. Um, I don't know where, where I would choose. I think, I think it just depends on the opportunity and what would interest me at that time. Um, as we briefly chatted earlier, like I've traveled, um, I don't want to say extensively, that wouldn't be the case, but I've been to Asia, like I've been to Malaysia, Thailand, um, been through Vietnam, China, like I really enjoy the cultures, the foods, like they're, they're pretty cool to me. And especially because they are so different, I think I would probably veer away from Eurocentric, uh, nations. That makes Maybe sense. Eastern Europe would be cool. Yeah. But... yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, like, that's awesome. and then... And end of the day, I think like a, a wholesome life is just being able to experience everything in in in, in the excess of diversity, you know. So mm -hmm. like if if you if you're you know if, if you've grown up in like for example an Asian centric environment, it's good to get out and experience life in the Eurocentric sphere, and then just kind of combine both perspectives together to give you like a, a unique or more so a, a holistic. Uh, a view on how you want to fundamentally see life yeah well and i think like for for all of us who have traveled it gives us more of a complete view of what the world is actually and um you can tackle issues from multiple perspectives rather than just where you come from yeah absolutely yeah agreed to that so now um how did you guys get into metal and what were some of your first bands that you really enjoyed yeah, you go ahead, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so funnily enough, I actually got into rock thanks to my dad. He was a bassist in his previous band and he introduced me to Scorpions, Deep Purple and Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, all those classics, right? Um, however, during uh, school, I got into rap music, gangster rap, you know? So I yeah. went through that phase. Um, however, my first girlfriend, she introduced me to Arch Enemy. Right. <laughs> solid introduction. <laughs> yeah, solid introduction, right? Sex and Arch Enemy. Um, and then um, I, I came back into the, the regular scene. So like Linkin Park, Avenged Sunfall, Bullet for My Valentine, My Chemical Romance, all that stuff uh, when it was quite fresh. Then I progressed from that to more extreme forms of music, uh, actually to more technical forms of music because those engage my mind. So I prefer those types of music more. So I got into Meshuggah, I got into Nevermore, a lot more guitar-centric, riff-centric uh, metal bands. And uh, I, I continue to listen to them till today. However, uh, currently my music tastes are more in the form of the brute uh vapor wave genre of music more electronic so i i am throughout my life i'm seeing a progression an ebb of flow you know of, of musical mm -hmm. tastes 
which I feel it, it's important to have because if you keep listening to only one type of music uh, as, as a creator, as a musician, you tend to only create that type of music then. So you need to broaden your range of listening in order to be able to write something interesting in the first place. And then you can sit there and say, this is something I want to pull from this uh, exactly. musical genre. Exactly, which is what we have done for Machine Eater, to be honest. So we have mm -hmm. elements of hardcore, we have elements of punk in there, we have a, a, a elements of melodic death metal, we have technical death metal in there. It's a, it's a hodgepodge of, of metal influences, which in itself creates something unique. Exactly. And Easy, what was your introduction to metal? So... Um... Very early on in life, um, like a very atypical Asian kid, uh, my my mom uh, imposed playing uh, the violin onto me. So I was a violinist um, up to the age of probably like 15. And um, I was exposed to a lot of early classical uh, chamber music, but I didn't necessarily resonate with it. I don't think I could, I could have really appreciated it until uh, my early 20s. Um, so I didn't listen to consume music. Um, I, I remember vividly being 13, 14 years old and not knowing how to fit in because I didn't listen to music. I didn't necessarily like uh, like R&B, which was really big at the time. I didn't necessarily uh, like rap because it was perceived as something only people of a social class or standard could really enjoy. So I had a South African friend um, who introduced me to um, two bands. Uh, one, it was, one was it was Linkin Park. And um, the other was uh, System of a Down, and um, I remember um, I think it was I think I believe it was Meteora uh, from Linkin Park that I, I loaded it up into my I had a PSP at the time because I didn't listen to music so I didn't have an iPod or something so I loaded up my PSP and I was just listening listening to it on my my little speakers you know on the PlayStation and yeah absolutely loved and resonated with the music um at the time and i think um being uh, you know again like being like this this kind of awkward kid with not many friends and uh, i i guess i was considered a weird, weird kid in class like having heavy music kind of gave me um not only an outlet that, that i could resonate with not because i was necessarily angsty or anything it just it, uh, but like it also kind of you know metal really creates this um, whole sense of brotherhood that preceded and superseded cliques and superseded nationalities and superseded cultures. You know, no matter what culture you listen to, if you play like "Ride the Lightning" from Metallica or um, you know like a fucking Cannibal Corpse album or something, and if you both listen to it, it just you know it, it creates that connection that bond you know um so i started out with i guess a lot of new metal um so and one of my favorite bands today is, is deftones it still is deftones i think they make fantastic music and they have continued to make fantastic and evolutionary music since the inception of the band um so i think when i got into more of the esoteric and heavier stuff um through um iTunes. So uh, I, back then in the early 2000s, iTunes did this thing that allowed you to listen to 30 seconds of every song uh, before you buy it. So I would just listen to 30 seconds of every song and then they would continue to recommend songs to me based on the algorithm. But I wouldn't actually buy it. I'd go on LimeWire and then download it. And then when you download yep. songs from LimeWire, 
there's like a 30% chance this is going to be like pornography. So either way for me, as, as a 14 year old, that was a win, you know, <laughs> I'm either going to get, you know, like from Mars to Sirius and Gojira, or I'm going to get interracial gangbang. So oh, you know, I'm not complaining. So uh, I think oh, where, where music got interesting for me, I guess, was this one time I accidentally downloaded the Relapse sampler. So Relapse Records have this thing. Every year they're going to give they 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 have these free samplers ready, but twenty five songs from twenty five different bands, and um, it a lot of it is like more I guess like esoteric, extreme music. So like you know like your crust punk, your grindcore. So that really opened me up to like really really weird bands like um, you know Author and Punisher, uh, Car Bomb, um, uh, Magruder Grinder. So these were bands you wouldn't necessarily find in like big festivals like. Um, you know, some of Pop Slam or, you know, in Bakken and stuff like that, but more of like, like your experimental underground kind of like, you know, experimental, like aggressive music. That's, that's how I would uh, best describe it. Um, now, like having exposure to that and then bringing, um, you know, like, you know, it's like what Renver said, the technical, um, bringing technical music into like something I consumed regularly. So, you know, whereas Runvere was into bands like, uh, uh, like, like guitar-driven bands, because I wasn't a guitarist, I played bass, right? So I was more mm. groove-oriented bands, but in on, uh, within the technical spectrum of like the Dillinger Escape Plan, and um, yeah, you know, Sugar definitely was there. Um, I think both Runvere and I enjoy like bands like Opeth and stuff like that, um, and that comes from the fact from that putting aside how fantastic the guitar composition is, you know, like coming from a classical background, it allows me to build and kind of understand and dissect the composition of uh, how Opeth writes her songs in a classical or contemporary chamber co uh, context. And um, Machine Eater is that. It's the mixture of groove-oriented music, but um, it has a really, really technical glaze put on top of it. So you know, it resonates to listeners who are necessarily tuned in to complex guitar-driven music. But at the same time, if you are into technical music and if you are into bands that are progressive and challenging and you're looking for music that is challenging, then this kind of suffices because it gives you both of that. Cool. Do you guys notice, um, like, a specific sound coming out of Malaysia in the metal scene or is it just piecework from all different types of genres? Um, there is certainly a similarity that a lot of our peers have uh, which is why when we wrote Machine Eater we emphasized to each other and for each other that we need to be something different. We need to be that, that unique lotus amongst the puddle of metal that is currently in Malaysia. Um, not dissing them or not saying whatever they are saying is bad or whatever they are doing is bad, but what we decided was to 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 stand out as much as possible, right? Obviously, we, we want to cater to a wider audience, where else bands in Malaysia tend to be more for the local, by the local, you know? So we are locals, yes, but our music is for everyone. For example, um, two days ago, 
I made my parents listen to the entirety of Machine Eater. And mind you, they don't listen to metal at all. Non-metal listeners, non-rock listeners. They are more like pop kind of guys. And and when I made them hear it, uh, okay, thank God they're my family. So they accepted what they've heard. But they definitely showered me with praise that even as a non-metal listener, this is engaging and interesting to listen to. And mm-hmm. thanks to Simone from Italy, who did a fantastic job with the mixing. It makes the entire experience of listening to Machine Eater that much more enjoyable. To be honest, like as we chatted earlier, I was a little bit sick over the past couple of days, so I haven't had a chance to listen to the album, but I'm really excited to dive into it because I liked what I've heard so far. Nice, man. Nice, man. Thank you. And I'll definitely give you guys a message once, uh, once I go through everything. Please do, man. Please do. It, it will only take you 40 minutes, which is nice. So it's like short yeah. and sharp, you know? Yeah. But I certainly hope you enjoy the album, man. Uh, we, we spent all the effort that we had and quite a lot of money to make it a reality. So what was the album uh, pro- writing process like for you guys? Not, not the writing process, but from its inception to its completion, what was that like for you guys? <laughs> Do you have half an hour? <laughs> I have as much time as you guys need. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, easy, I'll take over for a bit. Um, so for the composition, uh, initially, Modflash started out as a five-piece band, right? So we had a drummer and a second guitarist with us at that time. So this was 2020, back when the pandemic hit. So we started writing for the single Skyfather. And that was a beautiful process in which all five of us got together and, and created something I felt was quite unique at that time because I was quite new to the band. I actually joined Moth Flash in February 2020. So right before okay. the pandemic hit, right? So that's when I joined the band and uh, we, we wrote together Skyfather and it was a beautiful experience. However, as the lockdowns continued and the pandemic got worse, um, all of us found ourselves at, at odds with each other where vision is concerned. And uh, the most kind of friction that we had was with our ex-drummer, who I felt was going in a vastly different direction than what we wanted to do. So as, as time moved on, uh, the, the circle got smaller and smaller. Our rhythm guitarist left because he had work obligations that he couldn't ignore any longer. So what happened is that me and Izzy started getting together to write a lot more. But due to the lockdown, we couldn't do it physically, you know. So we had to rely on Zoom. So we had a lot of writing sessions online through shitty internet connection and bad mics like what happened to me today. Just imagine <laughs> that over the, the, the period of months, working till late night, 6 a.m. in the morning, trying to get the riff out of my head and out of his head and trying to put it in the door, you know. And um, I am lucky and fortunate enough that Easy was patient enough to work alongside me and whatever eccentricities that I may have in the writing process and I believe what we what we did and what we put together was a compelling uh, song structure that's one number two would be a, a compelling vision for people to latch on to so machine eater is it's it's a unique concept because most like what Izzy said earlier most people's vision for the future is very colorful very optimistic 
we flip that script, so to speak. What if future is still there? Yes. What if technology is still there? Yes. But everything is shit. <laughs> Basically, right? So think of like um, if Skynet took over in the in the fiction realm, right? What if Skynet took over, uh, machines started killing humans, and the only way humans can survive is by joining them? And what would that sound like? That's what we were going for. I like it. Yeah. Jeff, sorry, um, you, you asked, uh, you gave us a question about the Malaysian scene earlier, like what kind of bands mm. um, are prevalent or what sounds prevalent over here in Malaysia. Um, just mm-hmm. to give you a really quick answer on that. Um, what's really prevalent over here in Malaysia is hardcore music. In, we've been talking about like the rock and metal scene. So when we're talking about like early hardcore, so we're talking about bands like, um, you know, like Madball and uh, Poison the Well, um, uh, like the NYHC's kind of like hardcore. So that's still really big over here in mm. Malaysia, like a two-step and stuff like that. Um, but we're, we're seeing like a new wave of like hardcore um, in my uh, innovators, even here in Malaysia, and I have to say, as a metal listener, I think hardcore music is actually more innovative than metal today than even the most progressive metal band, um, which is great. You know, so like now younger kids are getting tuned on to bands like Knocked Loose and Harm's Way and Incinerary and stuff like that. So that's that's big. The hardcore scene is huge over here in Malaysia, especially the straight edge hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. Bands like Earth Crisis are going to be, you know, like people eat them up over yeah yeah um now um on the more commercial side of things uh metalcore and post-hardcore are also pretty prevalent over here so we've got bands that have like an early architects sound and bands that do a bit of the like the the like the synth pop thing like um like mid catalog enter shikari and mid catalog bring me the horizon so that's that's got a big following over here uh in malaysia um when it comes on to more of the extreme stuff, uh, we have maybe one or two grindcore bands, but like old school death metal is still a big thing here. So like bands like Bolt Thrower, Herbitry, um, um, trying to think of anything like Incantation, um, um, Pestilence and stuff like that. Uh, huge, still huge over here in Malaysia. So that kind of gives you an idea of what works and what doesn't. So like a band like us, mm. where we're, we're kind of like... Um, where we're we're in, mixing in things like you know hardcore and death metal and stuff. We're decapitated. Con- <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we're constantly just on the border of everything. So yeah, we can play in a lot of shows, but at the same time, people don't really know what to make of us. I kind of like um, I kind of like the fact that musicians are now like bringing in multiple genres into their metal or into their music period. And uh, like an example. Uh, fuck i think it's oh no i don't remember if if it's the band or the album called burial in the sky but they play with a saxophone and i like the introduction of like non-metal instruments so it's kind of cool to see the experimentation that uh that a lot of metal bands are taking and i think that touches on on your point there easy about just incorporating multiple genres into your music thank you thank you um i think that's something we're going to be doing in the future of of Moflesh as well, not just incorporating um, different different soundscapes, but incorporating different interpretations of music as well. Like, um, and I know Runver is going to talk about this at length, but I'll just start it off. Um, the scales and modes we used in the song 
were predominantly Asian scales and modes. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, run very. You can you can talk about this. Sure. Um, let's zoom in on Lotus Denial. So I'll break that down for you guys. Um, if you notice in the initial riff, so that's a chromatic scale actually. So it, it just literally goes half a semitone up. However, we we figured okay, that's pretty interesting. But how do we spice it up? You know, how do we bring that? Asian flavor in there, so we decided to inject a little bit of the Japanese Hirajoshi skill in there. So, so that sound itself, it's actually very Asianetic, right? So we decided to use that as a how you call it a flavor of the album. We don't overuse it because it gets tiring pretty quick. I understand that. So we have a lot of harmonic minor, a lot of the darker pentatonic. Uh, sounds however we also mixed in with a lot of um i don't know if you're familiar but there is a a, a rhythmic feeling in uh, of an indian scale it's called carnatic music right so you have a lot of uh, odd groupings of notes within a 4/4 time signature so we also used a lot of that implementation in our music so if for example if you were to listen to the song called knife in the back you'll notice that it has a lot of indian groove in there but expressed in a more western metal style so hmm. yeah yeah so we, we we tried to do a lot of experimentation sound wise um, mm-hmm. in, in order to get our point across that yes we're an asian band but we are international enough for you to enjoy how, and get a flavor of the asian in there I like that. Are you guys planning on um, incorporating any traditional Malaysian instruments into your music or have you already? Uh, we have not yet, <laughs> but um, I, I I can't promise you what the future will hold. To be honest, personally speaking, I find uh, introducing uh, instruments, Asian instruments into metal, especially, can quickly become cringe. It can quickly sound lame. So what we have to do as a as a band is balance that. Mm-hmm. There's a very fine line for us to tread. And for Machine Eater, I was a bit hesitant, to be honest. I was a bit hesitant to put that in. So we did not this time around. But like I said, you never know what the future may hold. Uh, experimentation is definitely abound. We are planning to do a couple of uh, singles for 2022. So let's see what happens. I think just kind of building on what one runner is trying to say is that like, you know, like, the whole notion of bringing ethnic instruments into your composition um, is is this thing where it can quickly shift from you being a death metal band to you being a folk metal band. Yeah. You know, like Iluvite, you know, like, or Iluvite. I don't know how to pronounce the band name, band's name, but like, <laughs> they've got the, the, hurt, the, hurdy, the hurdy-gurdy, right? That, that, that's yeah. the thing, right? So, like, I mean, is it really a folk metal, metal band or is it just a death metal band that hasn't, a hurdy-gurdy in there it's it's really hard for you to to say so it, you know like where where we don't want to come off as is we don't want to come off as here's a metal band plus an instrument that just makes it different how we would probably approach it as a band is that okay so here's an instrument here's the sound that this instrument creates let us build our song around that sound and instrument as opposed to writing the song and then mm. clapping that trying to like you know like hard code that song into uh the 
the the composition. So interesting. So yeah, oh, sorry. If I heard you correctly, you guys build your song around the um, the sound that the instrument makes, or that it would. Is that what you guys did with uh, the song that you incorporated the Japanese um, scale into? Yeah, so the Hirajoshi scale, I got actually quite interested with that sound due to the fact I was listening to techno one day when I was working out and um, there's this particular artist, I think Daniel Deluxe on Spotify, and uh, he was experimenting with, uh, with the Japanese scale in the techno realm. So that kind of caught my attention. So when I kind of sculpted, uh, when we worked together on Lotus Denial especially, I, I brought in this element. He's like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, you know, we could progress further with that. So that, that's how that came about. Do you guys have any shows planned coming up or? Okay. So uh, we're actually um, in the midst of launching our official album launch um, in the end of January. That's going to be uh, in Kuala Lumpur. And we've got a few local bands uh, lined up to support us and uh yeah that's it our biggest challenge right now if, if, if we're being honest is actually completing the lineup we've got a few guys who could session in this but the thing about getting people to session um to play you know when we say session like you know to play with us on stage for specific shows is that it it you know it, it we, we don't we're not operating on full force we're operating on hired guns and stuff so there isn't that sense of intuition that I necessarily have in stage with Ranveer or with my vocalist, you know, Imran, because we're not we're not in it together. A big part of being in a band is that sense of camaraderie, you know, or as Ranveer and I like to say, you know, being in the trenches. So like yeah. when you're paying someone to just play in stage of you, there's there's this kind of like sixth sense where you kind of know that, okay, this guy is just on stage because you paid him, but he's not really invested in the music, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that when you guys um, work as a band together, it helps you guys communicate like non-verbally. You guys know where you are on stage. You guys, you know your routines and everything like that. And yeah, how it's each very other... important actually. During a live show, sometimes all I have to do is just look and easy, and we kind of bounce off each other non-verbally, you know. And that's amazing to have with a member. But like what Easy said, having a hired gun is definitely a a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Good thing is that you know you don't have any attachments. But the, but the bad thing is you don't have any attachments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <You> know? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, like what Easy said and what he alluded to, we are actually having major, major issues trying to find somebody suitable, not just uh, technically, but uh, as, as uh, what I would say, psychologically or like uh, I knew Easy and Imran before I even joined ModFlash. So we were friends for years before the idea of me even but we have also strengthened that bond of friendship and i believe being in a band is actually having fun with your friends that should come first i think i would agree although i've never been in a band um but i can definitely see working with friends or working with other people that closely i can also see it being uh difficult to communicate properly over time or if you guys have very different uh differentiating opinions yeah, I mean, me and Easy are not cut from the same cloth. So obviously, we would uh, constantly butt heads uh, about so mm. many different things. 
But one thing be- beautiful about having friendship is that you learn how to compromise with each other. And that's the most important thing in a band situation. You have three people, you have five people, six people, whatever the number is, if everybody can put aside their ego and just be vulnerable with each other and be uh, honest with each other and, and share your opinions without the feeling of being judged. I think having creating a safe space like what we have in Mothflash is extremely important in being a solid band that can go far into the future. And if you don't have that, unfortunately, you are not going to last too long. So one thing I'm hearing from you guys is there's a lot of respect and a lot of mutual, um, I don't want to say compromise, but basically a lot of respect between you guys and the ability to speak candidly with each other. Um, Something I've seen reflected in what you guys have said is the entire metal community. Like when you go to shows, you're always respected. If If you get pushed over in the pit, you're pulled up and push to safety um if you're wearing a metal shirt and you walk down the street and you know the other another guy is wearing a metal shirt you guys are already on the same playing field and there's the nod there's the mutual respect instantly so i think where i'm going with this is that out of all the communities that i have been fortunate enough to be a part of i think the metal community is one of the most respectful which is weird how the image is the other way around Mm -hmm. in the mainstream you know so I think that's what my close friends and families, uh, excluding my band members, don't actually belong in the metal community. So I'm considered the black sheep of my family, you know, the black metal sheep of my family. So <laughs> they are always surprised to see how genuinely nice people of the metal community are. And they are always taken aback because they have the, the, the mental picture in their head that, oh, metal, you got to be slightly psychotic, slightly evil, or, or like, you know, no, but nah, man, that does not exist in any metal community that I have personally been in. So I've been in the metal community in the UK, India, Australia, Malaysia, you name it, and everybody is nice, generally. I mean, mm-hmm. for sure, there are exceptions to that rule, you know, they are always going to be assholes, you can't avoid that, unfortunately. But majority, I speak for the majority, everybody's quite nice because they are quite chilled, to be honest. Well, and it's interesting too, uh, Ranveer, because you mentioned you got into gangster rap quite a, quite a while ago. I did, um, I did. That would be one of those scenes where I couldn't say the same thing about. I've had more problems at rap shows than yep. I have in the entirety um, of my, I guess, involvement in metal. I don't deny that, man. Um, the rap community can be a hostile and toxic environment to be in because perhaps the language that is thrown around a lot, you know, uh, for mm. example, you, you, you use derogatory statements against women and stuff like that. That, does, that, cannot, uh, that cannot build a healthy community out of a toxic, uh, degenerative uh, speaking style, unfortunately. I mean, sure, we curse a lot in metal, but it's usually directed at an institution or or a feeling or a motive that you're going for, right? It's not necessarily towards a particular community or, or mm-hmm. towards a particular group of people. So we don't have that hostility that rappers can have sometimes. Yeah, I would say so too. Like, there's a lot of different subjects that are covered in metal where... Um there is a lot of hate and anger, but it's like you said, it's mostly directed at an institution or a situation. That's right. That's right. I wonder 
do you guys think that um uh, I got nothing there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just uh, lost my train of thought. So I was going to talk more about rap lyrics and, and like you could have something like Cannibal Corpse where they talk about murdering people like constantly. Yeah. Why wouldn't that something breed the same kind of hatred? Is it because it's like a, more of a storytelling rather than being directed at somebody? Like they're not saying I want to kill this person. Right. Right. I, I guess what, where Cannibal Cops is concerned, particularly, I, I feel in my personal opinion, it's a storytelling. It's a fiction. You go into mm-hmm. Cannibal Cops knowing it's fiction. You know? Exactly. Unless unless you have heard rumors that, you know, one of the members are like behind bars for actual murder or something like that, then it will be a totally different story. You know, and then mm-hmm. you'll be looking evidence within the lyrics rather than just enjoying the lyrics. Uh, but uh, as a metal listener, you realize and you accept the fact that yes it's fiction everybody has murderous intentions let's be real we are animals within right we do have that rage sometimes i have been bullied in my high school so much so that i felt the urge to cause bodily harm but i'm i'm never going to do that because i'm aware my intellectual brain will never allow me to do that because mm-hmm. i'm aware of there there are ramifications to my actions there are consequences, not only to me, but to my family, to my community. So I will never do that, you know. And only truly psychotic people or like sociopathic people will eventually do that kind of things. And they believe in their own delusions. And if you are real enough with yourself, then you can look at lyrics very objectively. You can take so many other bands. There are so many other uh, metal bands that talk about murder, gore, uh, horror, all those things. But those exist why because we have that innate feeling within us and that feeling in order for it to be abated it needs to be expressed and if it's not expressed, the exact same thing as a horror movie too yeah exactly i mean why would we see people killing each other and why do we play video games that are violent exactly and so i mean with the metal territory you go in knowing that it's fiction that it's violent yeah. but it's something that you kind of accept and kind of push away. It's not something exactly. that we do open. Exactly. And you normalize it. I mean, you look at Call of Duty. You're shooting people in the head, for God's mm-hmm. sakes, you know. And sometimes yeah, I, I will shoot somebody and teabag them at the same time, you know. So, <laughs> and you and you realize that's fun. So, in, in your head, in your consciousness, you got to separate those two. I'm like, ah, this is not real. I'm having fun. So, you internalize that, look, this is not for real. I'm just trying to have a good time with my friends. That's it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I think just just to add to that, um, a lot of what you know, you see, music contextually is a lot. A lot of the lyrics are um, what what you glorify. You know, glorification plays a big role in in music, um, and you know, in, in a lot of like contemporary rap music today, um, a lot of that is this this whole concept of glorification of wealth, this glorification of power, and this glorification. Um, of this ability to, you know, as Runaway said, cause bodily harm or, you know, even murder um, and get away with it or use that as a stepping stone to success. And I think um, not just with metal, but with all genres of music, if your commentary in, in, in your lyrics are more so about glorification, it comes off as extremely superficial. Um, like metal, in my opinion, is the social commentary of the status quo in its most extreme interpretation. I mean, a lot of like the, the lyrics in Cannibal Corpse, in my opinion, comes from this 
um, this like you know this fantasy, but a lot of that fantasy comes from real life stories. You know, like murder murders happen and horrible murders happen all the time. We're not glorifying it, but we're just talking about it. Just the same way people watch you know horror films. It's that exactly. same sense of uh, escapism. Um, but when we start to glorify things, it just becomes, as you know, Andre says, really cringy in my opinion. Like, um, for example, like Sabaton, you know, like they're like this power metal band that glorifies war, you know. Um, and if you've actually studied war, you know, there's nothing to glorify about it. There's nothing to glorify about armies. There's nothing to glorify about death. But when you mm-hmm. do it, it just, in my opinion, it's an extremely infantile view uh, or infantile commentary on something that's absolutely horrible, you know? So, you know, this does, doesn't just happen in, 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 in rap music or R&B, but it happens all over the place. And when your message is, oh, yeah, let's glorify, like, the First World War, the, ba- the Battle of Somme or something, where millions of people have died, that's just, that's just stupid, you know? You're not honoring them, you know? You're just, you're just glorifying some innate, violent itch you're trying to scratch inside of you. And it's interesting that you uh, you picked Sabaton too, because I happened to take the opposite uh, approach with it. One of my buddies actually um, introduced me to Sabaton, and he's like, "I love these guys; they're amazing." I said, "Why?" And he's like, "Every song is a history lesson." And I'm like, "What do you mean?" So he he told me about this song called "The Winged Hussars," and it's basically um, about a mercenary group that uh, basically wore goose goose feathers i think it was on their backs and so as they were coming down the hill it would like whistle and anyways they saved a bunch of people i don't know everything about it but then starting to dive deeper into their lyrics i took it the same way that you take uh, cannibal corpse lyrics and i just thought of it as like a history lesson rather than glorification right uh and just just to add the wing the winged hussars were were mercenaries they were i believe they're polish um and Today, the Polish army still has the Wing Husser division, but obviously they're not mercenaries. They're just incorporated mm-hmm. into your general uh, army corps. Um, and I mean, again, like it's all just interpretation in the day, you know, like you've got your views and, and I, I've got my my views and stuff like that. Like, I, I think, you know, where all of this came from in metal, if you look at the history of metal is Iron Maiden, you know, especially yep. with like the Trooper and stuff like that, Ace is High. Um, and... That that imagery that it, it 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 conceived, you know, it it's it's evocative, it's imaginary and whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like again, this is like how Iron Maiden did it, effectively, in my opinion, is here's a here's a time and place where this event happened, and this is one facet of humanity. But this is just this this one facet is not my whole interpretation as a musician. You know, I'm not going to go on stage dressed up in like battle vests and stuff like that. I mean, if that's your thing, that's that's your thing. Yeah. My opinion, like it's just, you know, it's 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 a bit infantile in my in my humble opinion, you know. So and maybe that's why there's more of the uh, the glorification on their end is because they go out there in those cam those camouflage yeah. pants and then the vests and then the tanks and like the, the nets and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. something new every day right <laughs> absolutely there has to be um is there anything else you guys would like to cover for today what kind of music do you listen to yeah uh mostly metal but i really started uh okay so i've i've kind of branched out i've started really enjoying stuff like blues um 
right now. I can't think of too, too many off the top of my head, but I do like rap and I like all different kinds of metal. And I've most recently got into, uh, I think black metal was my most recent edition. Nice. Cool. But I'm kind of all over the place. And then like getting to talk with my guests, it's cool because once I, once I can kind of see their perspectives, their um, backgrounds, I can start picking different things out of their music and I start to really enjoy it more. So I think um, if you ask me that same question in a year, I don't know if I'd be able to answer it properly. <laughs> no, that's fine. Having a broad range in musical tastes is actually amazing. Plus, you have the opportunity to talk to people who make those music. So you get a behind the scenes view on where we are coming from. So mm-hmm. I, I really envy your position. It's awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, basically, like my metal uh I guess journey started in approximately 2008. My friend Nick Foster, he's actually, I think he was my second guest on the podcast here. Um, He was in a metal band called Divinity and he started showing me like the extreme types of metal. Whereas beforehand, I'd really only listened to like Slipknot, uh, Mudvayne and obviously like Metallica and stuff like that. But as I started to dive deeper, it was like a gateway and I just started getting heavier, heavier shit. And then now I'm kind of pulling back. Sometimes I like the melodic stuff. Sometimes I still not really into folk metal, but um, <laughs> I'm appreciating a lot more genres nowadays. You, you know, it's the thing about metal is like, it's such a big genre today that it can mm-hmm. satisfy the different, um, I'd say like soundtracks of what you want to experience in that point of time. So much yep. so that you won't even really need to, to go beyond the boundaries of metal. There's a genre that does it for you, you know? Um, so I think that's that's really one of the the, the, the interesting interesting things about metal, is, as well as the fact that it's it's like one of those, those genres, in my opinion, which is like the Olympics of musicianship. Metal musicians <laughs> are constantly trying to push the physical boundaries of what you can do, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to play as fast as I can, as technical as I can, or as, as long as I can, you know, like if you listen to the new Archspire album, it's, it's, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's even by my standards. Yeah. You know, like it's like, I can't even think that fast. So, right. Right. You know, (laughs) it's a, it's a feat of human achievement, not just metal, but this is like a musical achievement, you know, like if you're going to look at the history of music, there has to be a little anecdote, about Archpire, um, you know, and one more thing you brought up that was really interesting, like you know, listening to rap and stuff. If you listen to early rap, you know, like, uh, like Run DMC or like Beastie Boys or like even like early catalog, um, um, uh, what'd you call it? Uh, fuck, I, I can't remember it right now. Cypress Hill. Yeah, sorry. Um, a lot of the lyrics... In, in, in these like rap outfits are very in, in, in essence the message is very similar to to rap and punk rock today you know there is not so much of this glorification of you know like I have all of this and mm-hmm. none of you are good as me but it's more about I've risen to this point you know and I've struggled the struggle the struggle is the most important thing because it unites everyone everyone struggles in life. And on, on a lyrical level, we resonate more with struggles than we do with the glorification. The journey is what we resonate with more than the end result. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, coming back to what I said much earlier about how the media uh, glorifies um, industrialists and entrepreneurs, there's so much so of, oh, okay, here's this guy and this is what he's achieved and this is his wealth. This is a fantastic person. But it's hard for us as regular people to relate to that because this guy has lived a privileged life his whole life. How, 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 how are we supposed to connect and relate to that? Mm-hmm. Taking that analogy and transposing that to musical lyrics, it's, it's the exact same thing. If, there, if your music has no struggle, it has no story. If there's no story, there's nothing to follow. No, and then you take into consideration the fact that a lot of these people don't write their own songs, they don't write their own music, and it's all generally electronic. Mm-hmm. Kind of removes me from that whole scene. I like, I like the fact that you guys write your own music, your own lyrics, and same with most metal bands. Um, and then you take into consideration the, the raw talent that a lot of metal guys have. It's crazy. It's such a diverse genre. Like you could go from something like Dream Theater to something like Archspire all the way down to something like, I don't know, Spawn of Possession or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's one thing beautiful about metal is that it can go as extreme as you want or as technical as you want or as simple mm-hmm. or as enjoyable as you want. So there's a lot of spectrum of metal, which is why I'm still attracted to the genre after so many years of listening to it because mm-hmm. I've enjoyed like multiple versions of other people's metal you know and having been able to enjoy all of that now i'm at a position to create my own flavor and that is actually super super rewarding to be able to do that and for people like you to kind of like feedback to us that what we are doing is like pretty cool and enjoyable that's even more motivation for us to do even better in the future you know I feel like if I was in a band, the coolest thing would be would just be getting up on stage and seeing those people excited to see us play and to to sing our songs. Like that would be so cool. It is, man. I I would actually compare it with uh, taking drugs. It is quite an intoxicating experience, to be honest. And mm-hmm. me and Easy can't wait to go back on stage and and shred it up again because it's been a while, you know, due to the lockdown and whatnot. So we kind of been sequestered in our own homes. So now that finally things are looking up and a lot more better, uh, we are hoping to go up on stage a lot more often, like what we used to. I think that's a bread and butter of all metal bands is they need to be on stage. They need to have that energy and the fans need it too. So it's good that things are opening up and I'd like to see, I actually just bought my first metal tickets in the past two years, but the nice. day I bought the tickets, they're like, oh, the Omicron variant. So I was like, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> like what what band are you, are you planning to catch? Obscura. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, I'm uh, like this jealous right now. <laughs> <laughs> Is this really the new album, right? Like a year ago or two years ago, was it? 2019? I think they just dropped their latest one. Um, I don't remember what it's called, though. Okay. Off the yeah. top of my head. I just... Yeah. They have another couple of bands on the bill, and um, I like them as well. And I feel like shit for not remembering exactly who they are, but it is what it is. You can tell us afterwards. (laughs) Is is this a local show? Let me see. Yeah, it's here in my city. Um, They have a, let's see, for 2022. It's in March, so I don't don't suspect anything will be too bad. Um, I'm just looking here. It's... Yeah, their newest album is called Valediction, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, here we go. Um, so Abysmal Dawn is there, too. I really wanted to see Veil of Nath, 
which I've yeah. seen before. They're quite technical. And some another band that I haven't really heard of until I saw the poster was Interloper. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. That's a that's an awesome lineup, actually. All yeah, should be pretty good. Abysmal Dawn's latest. I think they just dropped an album, like literally a few weeks a few weeks ago. New album was out. I think so too. Yeah, um, I, I was a big fan of their last album. I thought I thought it was really good. It's like a really mm. really fresh take on like bolt thrower style death metal, in my opinion. So it's good to see like these kind of like new death metal bands innovate a very, in my opinion, limited genre. You know, when it mm-hmm. comes to, to death metal, because there's only so many ways you can uh, express death metal. But yeah. yeah, and then you have the difference between like old school and then brutal and all this other stuff. So mm-hmm. it's that's right. Again, the, the waters are muddied. But um, as far as your guys' music goes, where is the best place for fans to get it? What's the best for you guys? I would say Spotify. Yeah. I mean, if you've got Spotify, if you've got iTunes, any streaming platforms, like we just got into Tidal a couple of days ago, so that's kind of fun as well. So if you are into higher quality music, then you can definitely visit Tidal. But if you are just a average music listener, like how I'm usually enjoying my music, it's digital, Spotify. And where's the best place to buy merch or anything like that for any listeners on this side of the pond? Um, well, if you want to buy any merch from us, I mean, if you've got $25 to spend, then you can buy our CD and we'll ship it to you internationally. And um, if you've got like, I think it's uh, run very, what is uh, 150 ringgit in US dollars? 30 US dollars. 30 US dollars, then you can yeah. get from us. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Get in touch with us directly. It'll be easier that way. Fair enough. Guys, Don't thank you so much DMs. for being on the podcast today. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> man. Thank you. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. This is a, uh, this is a really good conversation and I look forward to having you guys on in the future. For Thank sure, you. man, for sure. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.